This talk was given by Vanessa Zwiese Goddard Sensei. Zwiese Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazwiesegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. To pray, you open your whole self to sky to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves and know that we must take care the utmost that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things breathe in knowing we are made of all this and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion like eagle rounding out the morning inside us we pray that it will be done in beauty in beauty. Good morning. It's good to be here. After not being able to be here for a little while, um, thank you to all of you for coming out this marathon morning, marathon Sunday, and especially welcome to uh, all of you who are here for the first time. Um, May this be another step, a clear step, in your path, whether it's here or wherever your path takes you. And this poem, this piece that I read, is called Eagle Poem by Joy Harjo, and uh, someone sent it to me a few weeks ago. And when I read it, I was immediately immediately struck by its beauty. Uh, Its words are so simple, so bare, and um, yet it is all of a piece Uh, like a song, like a prayer. And we don't often speak of prayer in Buddhism, at least not in in Zen, but if we take Harjo's own uh, description of it as that opening of your whole self, as a bearing of that self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to the voice that is you, So instead of a praying to, you're praying in, you're praying within, in service of that voice and of what we can't yet see and hear, but can deeply sense, that which is true and dependable. And it is actually almost a year to the day that I I sat here speaking to you, with you um, after our presidential election when uh, so much changed and so much suddenly seemed uncertain. And I thought it would be good today to speak in in praise, in celebration of that which does not change and is therefore uh, utterly dependable. And so those of you who just received beginning instruction in Zazen, you know, you may, you may think you just, you were given the instruction to 
count your breath, to see a thought, to let it go and come back, that you're learning to concentrate. But actually what you're learning, what you just learned is the instruction on how to open your whole self, how to sweep your heart clean. And so be careful and tread lightly. Expect there might be rough patches here and there. But also know that it is worth it. My first teacher used to say this may be the most important thing you do with your life. And so what we are learning to do with this very powerful practice of Zazen is to see ourselves, to see our lives in their bareness, unadorned and unfiltered. And doing so, we understand that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. The residents um, and I were, were speaking, the, the residents here at the temple, we were speaking about um, you know, just the, the question of are human beings inherently good or are they uh, tend towards violence? Because a couple of them have been watching the Vietnam series and apparently there's, there's a, a quote uh, from from uh, a man who was a soldier there who said, you know, war just taps into our, our uh, I don't know if he used the word natural, but our inclination towards violence. And, and I was saying that I, that I feel that, you know, inherently we're not anything. We're not good. We're not bad. From a fundamental perspective, the self is empty of self-nature. It's empty of characteristics. And yet we so often speak of, in, in Buddhism, our, our goodness, our perfection, our wholeness. Because when you see what this is, it becomes impossible to create that kind of violence because you realize you're hurting yourself. And so in order to, to create harm, you have to be at a distance. You have to not see things as they really are. And I also said, well, maybe I, I say this because I don't want to believe that we can be naturally violent. And sure, that there's um, an aspect of that, probably. But I also know that when you do see things as they are, you do see their, their interconnectedness, their interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. And it would be intolerable to harm another when you see in that way. And so when we don't see, we don't take care, we don't know, and we can't feel that blessedness in ourselves or in anything else. And, you know, my name, uh, Suisse, means uh, auspicious or blessed vow, or suspicious vow, (laughs) depending on who you ask. (laughs) Uh, and I have many times, uh, especially in the midst of struggle, been deeply, deeply grateful to my teacher for naming me this, for not letting me forget that I am blessed because I am, because I was born. And I am further blessed because I found somehow, I found my way to the Dharma. I found a teacher who believed 
that I could realize myself at times when I didn't feel that. First one teacher and then my other teacher, they, they um, trusted that I could. And not only did I find the Dharma, I have the ability, the inclination, the freedom to practice it. So I am uh, multiply blessed. And so, you know, the opposite of that distance is closeness. We call it identity in Buddhism. Zazen is about getting close so that we can see clearly. And it's about not being afraid of that closeness. The closeness that we um, crave, that we hunger for and fear in equal measure. And so it's, it's placing yourself in that closeness that is bare, that is naked, that is vulnerable, no question about it, and, and being willing, slowly learning how to not turn away, how to not in your restlessness and your anxiety and your fear bolt. Because you can't see it at a distance. You know, we can't hear the voice that is us when we're talking to ourselves, whether in our heads or, or with our mouths. We can't hear, you know, when our ears are plugged up, when we're moving too fast. And so, although these circles of motion that Harjo speaks of, they are everywhere, they're also subtle. So why do you think we sit so quietly and so still? And recently, I gave a talk at the monastery where I was speaking about um, consciousness and uh, a school of Buddhism, the Yogacara, that uh, sees consciousness as having eight levels. And the, the base level is the storehouse consciousness, the Alaya Vishnana in which all of the seeds of experience are stored. So everything that you have experienced is, is stored. Everything that everyone has experienced is stored in seeds. And uh, there's an interesting term that these seeds get perfumed with our um, intent and then with our actions. So certain seeds bloom according to how we act, whether we take care of them, water them or not, turn to them. And then a piece of the storehouse consciousness turns, because this is all-encompassing. It includes all of our consciousness, individual and uh, collective. And so a piece of it turns and looks at itself, at the storehouse consciousness, and falls in love with itself. That's manas, which is called love of self. And this is how the uh, self, how my sense of I, of me, is created. And this infatuation narrows our field of vision. So not everything that I experience, I, Suisse, I'm experiencing, right? So everything that I touch, that I see, that I hear, that is moving through my senses, I now experience it from the perspective of me, which is what helps us to navigate the world, but is also what gets us into trouble. And these these sensory experiences come from the other six consciousnesses, the six senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, which helps to process the other five. 
And according to the Yogacara, you know, in this, the way that this uh, schema of, of consciousness is drawn, there are three ways in which you can perceive reality directly, and this is called the, the field of things as themselves, or through representations and mere images. And so the first field, the field of suchness, we call it, is the field of things. We say things as they are. It is where we perceive reality directly, without those filters. And so Kant said that we can never actually be sure of whether what we perceive is true, because it will always be filtered through mind. And so he made a distinction between noumenon, the thing in itself, which cannot be known, he argued, and phenomenon, the thing as it appears. But Buddhism says that we can, in fact, touch the realm of noumena, of suchness, but that we do so so rarely because most of what we see, we see as representations, as mere images. And so the field of representation is the place where uh, we create images of things, of people. And we were talking, we touched on this briefly on the, uh, during the LGBTQ Mondo on Wednesday, that you know, when we fall in love, usually we're falling in love with, with an idea, not with the person as they are. We're falling in love with our idea of the person we wish to be with. And if our, our relationship is based on that representation, not on the person as they are, at some point we're going to become bored. We're going to become disappointed. Because our partner will inevitably stop acting out our fantasy at some point. They were never a fantasy. They're a human being, flesh and blood, and they're changing and they're growing and they're struggling with their own disappointment of you their own representation (laughs) of you. (laughs) And so living in the realm of representation is very disappointing, is very dissatisfying. It's like living in a story. It's like living with a script where we can only see a few of the lines. It's so heavily edited. We, We can barely even read it. It's not the real thing. And therefore, we want, we strive, we reach... We look for someone else, at least for a little while. And so the field of mere images is the field of dreams and imagination. So when I dream of a dog, that image is the mere image of the dog, right? It's not the suchness of the dog. But visualizations are also in the field of mere images. And here we use these pictures deliberately, skillfully, to create a particular reality. So although, you know, technically it is said that it is only in the field of suchness when you can experience things directly, I wonder, because images themselves have their own suchness. Uh, Mere images and representations have their own suchness. So when Master Dogen said that painted cakes do satisfy hunger... I think he was, he was referring to this. So an image, we were, I was working with the kids yesterday. We had a family retreat, and they had to draw in great detail the still, quiet place, however it is that they saw it in their mind. It could be a place they had been to or a place they created. 
And then we did a visualization together. And I said, you know, you can always return to that place when you're upset, when you're angry, when you're anxious. You can, in your mind, create your still, safe, you know, quiet place. And what happens is we quiet down. And so, so the field of, of um, mere images can in fact, I think, move, or, or maybe that the boundaries between these three are not as solid as we might think. And I, and I experienced this um, some time ago. I was, I was going for a walk. At, at, I was up at the monastery, and I was going for a walk at a time where I really normally don't take a walk, on a road where I never take a walk. And for whatever reason, that day I decided I was going to walk on that road. And as I was walking, it popped into my mind, because I'd been reading it, uh, The Little Prince. And the image, I don't know if you've seen it, you know, there's a drawing at the beginning where he's talking about, the author is talking about um, a snake swallowing an elephant. And it's whole in the the, the image. So you see a snake and then kind of the, the shape, the silhouette of an elephant, which he says when people look at it, it always looks like a hat. So I was, I was, that image popped into my mind. Following it right after, I remembered that, I don't know, five years earlier perhaps, walking on the road very close by, you know, going over to the Abbassy for a study session with the monks, we saw a snake and a frog facing each other, a face-off. And they're just staring at each other. And we were very concerned for the frog. <laughs> when we came back a couple of hours later, the frog was in the snake. And the snake was just sitting there, you know, digesting, I suppose. And so I saw this image next. And then I finished my walk, and I'm getting to the monastery. And there's a wall, and I see this tiny, tiny purple flower. And it really caught my attention. I decided to get close to look at it. So I take a few steps. I look at the flower. For some reason, I look down, and what do I see but a snake in the process of eating a frog? <laughs> and so the, if you think, I mean, the likelihood of that happening is so slim. And then so I was telling my partner about this, and she said, well, if you're going to manifest something, why don't you manifest enlightenment, you know? <laughs> A world peace by a snake and a frog. (laughs) And so there's these moments where something, I feel like, is like we, we, we move through a crack into the backstage, as it were. You know, like we, we plug in for a second into the fabric, you know, the fabric of, of the cosmos. And I think it's one of the reasons why, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, visualizations are so uh, prominent and are so used. They call it uh, creation meditation, which I thought is interesting. You know, Zazen, we always speak of it as not creating, stopping that constant creation. So in a visualization, you're very deliberately turning your mind and creating, quite literally creating a reality. The problem is, of course, we don't do this uh, consciously. And so we do live in these uh, images and representations 
And think of all the trouble, all the heartache, all the conflict that we create for ourselves and for others when we do this, when we live in our stories, we live in our certainties, which aren't even real most of the time, perhaps all of the time. And so in the Prajnaparamita, in uh, 8,000 lines that we have been studying, the Buddha asks Subhuti, Imagine a person who, unable to see an elephant, would try to determine its color and shape. In the darkness, she would touch and examine the foot of the elephant and decide that its color and shape would be inferred from its foot. Would that be an intelligent thing to do? And Subhuti says, no, of course not. And yet this is what we do all the time. We see an image and we take it as truth. We see a sliver of a person of a place, and think that we have seen the whole. And this is exactly how our bias, our prejudice, our fear is created, what it is based on. And because it's challenging, it is a difficult practice to train yourself to see a whole, to train yourself to see the person in front of you. Most of the time, we just follow our script, right? And, and we're struggling, you know, to, to follow the lines. As I said, they're so marked up, and we can't really even understand really what's happening, but we don't want to admit that. We don't want to look like we don't understand, like we don't know what's going on, and so we just plow ahead valiantly. And we play our role, and others play theirs, and then, you know, we go home, and we have a drink, and we think, well, that went, that went pretty well. But then why do we feel so empty? Why do we feel so ill Ill at ease? So this base consciousness, the storehouse consciousness, manifests all of these three modes of perception, direct representations and mere images. Manas, the self, can only can only manifest as representations and images, right? So you cannot see, from the perspective of the self, you cannot see suchness. You cannot see things as they are from the filter of the self. That is why we spend so many hours trying to let go of that filter, let go of that self, so that we can see directly. But the interesting thing is that that the six sense consciousnesses can experience suchness. So you can have these moments, these glimpses of true seeing, of direct seeing. And there's this very well-known koan of uh, Yunmen who uh, became one of the most revered teachers in Zen, 8th and 9th century, I believe. And this was before he even became a teacher. He was, he was still a monk himself. And he went to study with Mu Zhao, who was known as a very eccentric, uh, kind of wild uh, master. And Yunmen went to see him and knocked on the door of his room. And Mu Zhao just said through the closed door, you know, who is it? And Yunmen said, it's me. And Mu Zhao says, well, what do you want? And Yunmen says, well, I haven't yet clarified the great matter. I'm asking for the master's instruction. Please teach me. And Muja just opened the door a crack, looked at Yunmen, just closed the door, slammed the door in his face. 
And twice, Yunmin did this. And every time, Mujab would open the door a crack, slam it in his face. But Yunmin was determined. So he was, he was ready. So he went one more time. He knocked on the door. And when Mujab opened it, he stuck his foot in the door. And Mujab just grabbed him and said, speak, speak. And Yunmin was about to open his mouth, and Mujab just slammed the door on his foot and broke it. And at that moment, Yunmin became enlightened. <laughs> Don't try this at home. <laughs> what did Yunmin see? And because, you know, people have certainly, many people have broken a bone or two, and I'm sure they haven't become enlightened. And so what was happening in Yunmin's mind? at that point. What was different? And I've always asked myself, could he have realized the same thing if Mujau had tickled him with a feather? Masters have realized themselves listening to the sound of rain, watching plum blossoms falling from a tree. So what is it that they're seeing? What are they hearing? What realm are they living in? And is it different from this realm? And I was working on this, and um, day before yesterday, I guess, I went for a run, and I usually run towards the, uh, towards the promenade. And as I got there, I saw, and it was, the sun was just coming down. It was, it was about to set. So it was a beautiful um, evening, afternoon. And... I, I looked up and all of a sudden I saw the sun shining through this, there's this water tank, you may have seen it, that looks like it's made of stained glass. It turns out it's, it's plexiglass, but it's beautiful. And the sun was shining right through it. And for an instant, I just saw it. I saw the whole thing. I wouldn't claim I became enlightened. But I saw this tank and I saw the sun you know, moving through it and in the very next instant, I wanted to know, oh, who put it there? Who made it? It's so beautiful. Right? And so it's these, these flashes. That's why so many of these koans are that. You know, you just get the, he opened the door, closed it, opened the door, closed it, broke his foot, got enlightened. But leading up to that are the years and years of practice and training, all the hours and hours that Yunmen spent on exactly that seat that you're sitting on, quieting his mind, letting his mind settle, forgetting the self, opening up to himself so that he could see in the right moment. The the Yogacara says, when the seed is ready, it ripens. And it takes time. You can't force it. You can't make it ripen early. Know that there is more that you can't see, can't hear, and can't know. Except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. I don't know if you've ever seen an, an eagle circling you know, high up in the sky. I saw one recently, a bald eagle. And they're massive, actually. It was quite close when I saw it. I was going for a run. And, um, I mean, they're almost four feet, an, an adult. And I thought I was being very stealthy. Stealthy, yes. As I, was, as I was getting to it, of course I wasn't. It saw me right away. And it just flew up. And so when I was coming back, it was really high up, right pretty much above me. And it just 
does these perfect, perfect widening circles, or like the ripples on the surface of a lake. And it doesn't flap its wings at all, so it just tips you know, this way and that to catch the, the uh, updraft. And the circle really is so perfect, circle of motion, so perfect, so pure, that to me it's indistinguishable from stillness. It's like a top spinning perfectly in perfect balance. You can't tell whether it's moving or still. Stillness and movement completely intertwined. That's another circle of motion. And this led me, somebody sent me a, a, a podcast of a, of a runner who, um, she, when she was 28, she started getting seizures, epileptic seizures. And in the beginning, she found that she could outrun them, quite literally. So when she would start to get the aura, she had her shoes by the door. She would just put them on and, and start running. And the seizure would stop, it wouldn't, or it wouldn't come. And she started running an hour, two hours, three, five, six. And eventually, the seizures cut up with her. She could no longer outrun them. And it got so bad that they started happening three, five times a week. She had small children. She said she taught her kids to drive when they were really young because she thought, if I have a seizure as I'm driving, they need to be able to drive. And so she realized she was probably going to die from it. So she went to the doctors, and they said, well, we have to find the place where the seizures are happening in your brain because we, it's likely that we could um, do surgery and remove it. And so they did that. She went to the hospital. She had a seizure. They found it. She had surgery, successful. Since that time, she hasn't had a, um, a seizure since. But it's, it, they took out a piece about the size of a kiwi of her temporal lobe, which means she doesn't have both a spatial sense. She also lost that. So she can't follow maps. She can't follow directions. And she also lost her sense of time. What happened is she became one of the best ultra-marathon runners in the world because she doesn't know how long she's been running. So she does these races. One of these races, I looked her up, is like 430 miles in the Yukon Territory where 10 consecutive days, and she's sleeping an hour a night. That's it. And, you know, you would say, but wouldn't her body break down? I mean, she was an athlete to begin with. She was a, a professional tennis player before she started running. So clearly she, you know, she has the build for it. But, but what's so interesting to me is that her, her sense of pain, she doesn't create her own sense of pain by being afraid of how long she still has to run or how far she's already come. She's been running for five days. She doesn't know that. She just runs. And I've used that phrase so many times in my own uh, running uh, retreats that I do. And I find that here's a person who actually does that, who can actually do that. And I don't think she knows anything about practice. She quite literally is just running. Now everybody else knows not to follow her because she'll just go off on a trail and since she can't uh, follow a map, she'll go down the wrong trail for two hours. It doesn't bother her. She'll just turn around, go back, find another trail. (laughs) 
You know, she's, it's incredible. Now, her daily life is, is very challenging. It's extremely challenging. But in running, she's completely free. She's completely free. And, I, and someone said, you know, what, would, what is motion like for her? I suspect it is not unlike stillness. It is not unlike rest. And she talks about rhythm. She doesn't pace herself. She doesn't do anything other than listen to the rhythm of her feet on the ground. And she matches her her breath to her steps. That's all she does. And she says there's nothing else in her mind, which I believe. I mean, she probably has, you know, random thoughts here and there. But she can't even keep the train of thought. You know, even as, as they, they were interviewing her, a few times she said, where was I? Where was I? You know? And so, you know, of course, that is a dramatic example, but we can actually all experience this. The catch is we, ha- we have to make our lives bare and simple. And our lives are anything but, right? Right? And so you can't often, you know, you can't change the circumstances of your life. And, you know, most of us, I would say, you know, have to do a lot during our days. But you have Zazen, a place where you uh, come and rest your mind. I actually say that to myself, especially when I'm feeling distracted. Rest your mind. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this. And breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion. I've said often, you know, that life is long enough for us to realize it, to realize what it is, what we are, but it's too short not to ask. And we must realize both our own circle of motion or circles of motion, my sphere, but how it intersects and overlaps yours. Because fundamentally, it is just one vast circle that encompasses everything. You know, we, we, in Buddhism, we speak of the image of the, the ocean. So we are the ocean, and we are that single wave. This is true of these circles. And what we're, we're trying hard to do, especially as practitioners, is to occupy that space harmoniously. And it seems it shouldn't be such a difficult thing to do, given that we're all circles, and we're all part of that larger circle. And yet it's proven so difficult that we still haven't figured it out. That's why, in the Prajnaparamita, the Buddha says that a bodhisattva should train themselves in this way. My own self I will place in suchness. And so that all the world might be helped, I will place all beings into suchness. And I will lead to nirvana, the whole immeasurable world of beings. With that intention, should a bodhisattva undertake all the exercises which bring about all the wholesome roots. So I do the work to place myself in suchness, to place all of you in suchness all beings, leading them to nirvana, to freedom from suffering. This is the field that is most dependable, that is, in fact, unshakable. 
when you realize who you are, your wholeness, your completeness, your perfection, no one can take that away from you. No matter what they do to you, someone could even kill you, they still cannot take your perfection away. That is why this field is unshakable. But how do you place yourself in suchness? By not placing yourself in the field of representations and images. Because suchness is actually, it's ever-present. All we have to do is not keep creating those images and representations that, just, that block our view, that block our direct contact. And so, as I said, Zazen is that practice of non-creation, of placing ourselves in suchness. Or more accurately, it's how we, how we enter into that field. Because it's not limited to, to Zazen at all. It just makes it a little bit more accessible. And these exercises that bring about all the, all the wholesome roots are our Zazen, our liturgy, our art and body practice, so the way that we train here in our, in our order, the study of the precepts, the study of the sutras, the relationship with the teacher, the work of practice, practicing work, sorry, a sacred activity. And then we do have to practice seeing all beings and all things as truly blessed. It doesn't mean that we fake it. It doesn't mean that we ignore their faults, their mistakes, their uh, all those moments in which we or them fall short. Um, and fall short is not even the, the, the right word because you can't, as I said, fall short. When, we, when there's just a gap from what we know is true and what we're able to manifest, that's the more accurate way of, of saying it. It means we have to work to see that blessedness that is, that is always there. And that is there simply because we are, as I said earlier, because beings and things are. Does it get covered over? Does it become so hard, so difficult to see at times that it seems like it's not there, like it's missing? Yes. Yes. And that's always been true. As long as human beings have been on this earth, you know, unfortunately, the way we mostly use our minds this becomes difficult to see. And I used to think that. You know, I used to think, well, you know, when I'm just able to see it, when I'm able to see all beings as perfect, and I'm able to see myself as perfect, then everything will be okay, and I will be happy, and life will be great. But now I realize that it's actually the work of seeing it, the practice of seeing that perfection, of finding that perfection, in the darkest places even, that is the most fulfilling. You stop worrying, you know, when will I get there? And you realize at each moment, you've already arrived. Like eagle rounding out the morning sun inside us, we pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, 
or to join her email list, please visit vanessaswesaygoddard.org.